1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8, page 1155 on the Church Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, ye have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. The second reading can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 to 44, following on. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body, as as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we sit together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our theme this morning, Christ is risen. And we pray that the fact of the resurrection would be an encouragement to those of us who need it to be so, and even a rebuke to those of us who need it to be so. For your name's sake. Amen. At C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, chapter 15, the lion Aslan has been killed by the witch. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, then I'll begin. As soon as the wood was silent again, Susan and Lucy crept out into the open hilltop. The moon was getting low and thin clouds were passing across her, but still they could see the shape of the great lion Aslan, lying dead in his bonds. And down they both knelt in the wet grass and kissed his cold face and stroked his beautiful fur, what was left of it, and cried till they could cry no more. It was quite definitely early morning now. At that moment they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, a deafening noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that? said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I, I feel afraid to turn around, said Susan. Something awful is happening. 
The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All the colors and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Oh, 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 cried the two girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round, and there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they'd seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children staring up at him, almost as frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. Well, C.S. Lewis's Aslan is a thinly veiled allegory for the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Christ has died. We looked at that last week, and this week we're looking at the glorious truth, Christ is risen. Lord Jesus Christ, are you dead? Not now. Not now. And I have three headings. If you're a note taker, they're found on the back of the service sheet, um, notice sheet. And each one highlights an implication of this historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the first one is this. Christ's resurrection and the gospel. Christ's resurrection and the gospel. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I have preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. The gospel, uh, that is the key constituent parts of Christian belief, without which... Christian belief falls apart, and without which Christian people fall away. The gospel. And what is this gospel? Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. So if we're wondering this morning what it is that Christians believe what Christianity is, then here it is. Christianity 101, Christ's resurrection is a non-negotiable part of orthodox historic Christian belief. I don't know, have you ever done a house renovation? Uh, Have you ever wondered whether this particular wall in your house could be knocked down? Maybe you're opening up your kitchen with the dining room. It's all in vogue today to do that, isn't it? Well, may I suggest, if you have, the next question for you is a structural question. Is this wall a load-bearing wall? That is the next question to ask, might I suggest humbly. It is really quite an important question. If it isn't a load-bearing wall, you can lose the wall and keep the house. That seems to me to be a good way forward. But if it is a load-bearing wall, what you do to the wall happens to the house. Uh, You lose the wall, you lose the house, I'm afraid, so sorry. Uh, You keep the wall, you get to keep the house. It's a load-bearing wall. And if I can put it this way, the historical and physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a load-bearing doctrine 
in the house of Christianity. One cannot explain it away or doubt it. One cannot demolish this wall and still retain the rest of the house of the Christian faith. If Christ's resurrection remains, then Christianity remains structurally sound. If we lose the resurrection, then we lose Christianity. It all gets raised to the ground. So sorry about that. And I think there are three big uh, consequences of this under this first heading. First, are you a newcomer this morning? Are you maybe investigating the Christian faith? Maybe you're on the Alpha course started last Wednesday. You're coming along to big questions. Welcome. It is great to have you with us. But what you are doing is the spiritual equivalent of a structural survey on Christianity. And as you wonder whether Christianity might be a good place for you to live and call home, you are assessing the foundations of that particular house, the structural soundness of the walls, and the uh, waterproofing on the roof. And that's an important thing to do with any worldview. No doubt you'll be taking many, many things into account. Uh, Christian ethics, maybe Christian aesthetics, Christian community, Christian lifestyle, and so on. But can I say that there is one wall in the house of Christianity you need to go to first, and you need to prod it with a hammer, and you need to push against it, and you need to ask, can this wall bear the load that is on it? It is the wall, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because here, Paul claims that it is a load-bearing wall, and by implication, If it is not historically substantiated, then you'd be better off leaving the house of Christianity well alone. For with no resurrection, there is no gospel to speak of. No resurrection, I'm afraid, the whole house comes tumbling down. And the house of Christianity is really not safe for purpose. Did you see that in verses 17 to 19? Probably not, they weren't read to you. Um, I'm going to read them now. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who are asleep, that is dead, in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men and women. Do you see, the house cannot stand if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. If that's you prodding this wall, can it bear the load? Please come along to big questions this week. We are looking at this very load-bearing wall. Can it bear the load? The resurrection, please come. Uh, Please read this book if you have some time. Who moved the stone? Look at the evidence for the resurrection. There's plenty there. But second, perhaps you are a Christian person, but you have real and untested doubts in the historical and physical resurrection of Jesus. Is this you this morning? Uh, You think to yourself, people don't just bounce back from being dead. Uh, Maybe Jesus was resuscitated and not resurrected. Maybe it was all a hoax by the early disciples for some reason. Uh, Maybe the gospel writers, when they say he was raised from the dead, just mean he was metaphorically raised in their hearts in some sort of Clinton cards, wishy-washy sort of a way. And so we doubt it. Can I say that is not an unimportant doubt to live with? 
can I say you need to sort that doubt out and investigate this. If you doubt Christ's resurrection, you are doubting the whole of the Christian gospel, for the resurrection is a load-bearing wall in the house of Christianity. You've just moved into a house not knowing whether it may fall down around your ears at any moment. I suggest you check out the wall. Third, maybe you are convinced in the historical and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're confident that that is a truth. It really happened. If the load-bearing wall can bear the load, can I say the whole gospel must be true? I want to encourage you with that this morning. Let me just turn verses 17 to 19 on their heads for your encouragement. It means, if the resurrection is true, that our faith is victorious. Do you know that this morning? It means that we are forgiven our sins, guaranteed, no questions asked. It means that those Christians who have died are safe in heaven, no problem. It means that having those things, we are to be envied more than every man and woman who has ever lived. If you're sure in the resurrection, all those things are yours, because the house stands. It's a load-bearing wall. That's all well and good. Someone else's resurrection thousands of years ago, a historical marvel. But what about me? What difference does it make today? And so my second heading, Christ's resurrection and Christian resurrection. Verses 12 to 13. Again, we didn't have them read, so I'll read them now. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, it seems that some of the Christians in Corinth, for one reason or another, were willing to sign up to the creed saying Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, but they, they, they couldn't fathom the fact that Christians were going to be raised physically from the dead on the last day. That was a, a bridge too far for them. And we may empathize with their doubts this morning for our own reasons. Uh, perhaps it seems just too fantastical a thing to believe uh, perhaps you have had a Christian spouse or friend or family member die, maybe even in this last year, and you can't help but think that all this conversation about them being safe with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, well, what if it's all wishful thinking? What if it's all a question of projected desires? I want to believe it's true, so then maybe I think it is true. Is it just child's play, you think? Either way, we get used to saying Christ is risen, but it seems harder to imagine Georgette or Sarah or Michael or Julian rising from the dead too. But here, Paul is adamant that the two come together. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If I can put it reverently, the doctrine of the resurrection is only available to buy as a multi-pack. It never comes as an individual unit. I cannot have Christ raised only. If he is raised, then everyone in him, every Christian surely, will be raised from the dead too. It is a certainty. But how does that work? 
Well, have a look down to verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Firstfruits. Now, I don't think, to my knowledge, anyone here is a farmer. But my mum comes close. Uh, she makes jam. I think that's sort of like urban farming. And uh, we used to get excited. When, by the time midsummer came around, we had a crabapple tree in our Edinburgh garden. And, and when that first crabapple arrived, it was a moment of great excitement because we knew that with the first fruits was going to come the harvest. And granted, it was a modest harvest from one crabapple tree, but mum managed to turn it into many, many, many pots of crabapple jelly. Wonderful stuff. You see, when the first fruits arrive, the harvest is guaranteed to arrive. And so it is with Christ's resurrection from the dead. His Easter day is like the first crabapple in our garden in summer. It is the guarantee that our Easter days will surely follow if we're a Christian this morning. For he is the first fruits and we are the harvest to come. And can I say that is what makes it an act of humility for the Christian to say I am absolutely certain that I am going to heaven. That is not a proud thing to say because all I am saying is I am trusting that Jesus was the first fruits and I am found in him by his grace. That is a statement of absolute humility, certain humility. And what a harvest we will be. This is where Paul gets a bit gardener's question time on us. Have a look at verse 37. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. So he says, imagine you're planting an orchard. What you don't need to get is a, a, a tonking great truck reversing, beep, 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 with fully grown trees, and you don't just plant a fully grown tree. He says, what you get is a little packet from the garden center of seeds, and you just plant them. His, his point is very simple. The seed is very different from the end body it owns of, of the tree. You know, one you can get caught between your teeth, and the other one fills a garden. It's a very simple point. Uh, that, that, that he's making. Verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. And then he goes on to describe how our bodies now, which are the equivalent of the apple tree seeds, will be transformed into their resurrection counterparts. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Let's just dwell on that for a moment. You may have noticed, depending on what age you are, that your body has decay written into the DNA of it. I'm slowly realizing that now, I'm 32. And we try to delay it with our Pilates, don't we? Our yoga, our spin classes, our deliciously Ella and detox Bible healthy food recipes, our Sudokus and crosswords to keep us sharp, but still the decay sets in, however slow we manage to make it. Muscles sag, backs go, ankles swell, wrinkles lengthen, stoops deepen, memories weaken, attention spans shorten, decay. But our new bodies will be imperishable. No decay. Isn't that a marvel? Age will be a meaningless category in heaven. It will be impossible to tell how long someone's been there from appearance alone. 
And so he goes on, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. I don't have time to go into all of them, but basically it's going to be wonderful. No one marvels at an apple tree seed, but you often sit in an orchard, don't you? It will be amazing. Can I say, I believe God can heal physical ailments now. He really can. Cancer, mental illness, whatever it may be, he can do that. The day you and I die is the day we are planted. It's just gardener's question time. We're just going to be planted. And on that last day, we will come to fruition. And on that last day, that is the day when God promises he will heal every ailment any of us have. That is the day of promised healing. Sometimes when we pray with people, I will sometimes claim the promise. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've promised to heal so-and-so when you return. And he has. He may do it in the meantime, but he hasn't promised that. Third uh, point as we close, Christ's resurrection and the Christian life now. End of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's quite punchy, isn't it, from the Apostle Paul? Friends, if if this life is all there is, then there's really no point being a Christian at all. I mean that. Uh, Forget church. It's much better to join a club with people like you who are frankly better at small talk and have similar interests. Take up golf. That'll fill your Sundays nicely on a spring morning. Uh, Friends, forget evangelism speaking to others about Jesus. Uh, Better only to chat about the football family holidays, and if you're really stuck, politics. Uh, Forget about giving money to gospel causes. Much better to plow it only and ever into the pension plan and the the car-saving pot and uh, the new extension. Uh, Forget monogamous marital sexual ethics. Much better to explore your sexuality, go with your feelings. If life now is all that there is, Forget Christ. He died. Much better to go with self, wouldn't it be? You know, I really mean that. And so did Paul. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men and women. You know, what sense is there in denying self in this life, in the hope of the next life, if the next life is a fiction? That would be the very definition of madness. I would counsel you strongly from this pulpit not to do that. But what if Christ has been raised from the dead? And what if we will be raised with him too as Christians? Have a look at the end of verse 32 again and ask yourself, how would verse 32 be read the other way around? if the resurrection were a reality. Let me read you my version of it. If the dead are raised, let us live generously, taking risks for the sake of other people's eternities and forgetting our own pleasure, for tomorrow, for tomorrow we live. It means it is not foolish to die today, to die to self, to take on risks for the sake of the gospel. Don't you love verse 31? The Apostle Paul, at his most candid, I die every day. And he he senses that we don't believe him, and then he writes, I really mean that. 
That's how he lives because of the resurrection. Verse 30, he endangers himself every hour telling people this. Christ is risen. Did you know Christ is risen? Did you know Christ is risen from the dead? Do you know you can be raised again too? Do you know when you die, it's not the end? Do you you know that? I endanger myself every day saying that, Paul says. Because verse 58, that kind of labor is not in vain. The martyred missionary to Ecuador, Jim Elliott, famously said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's not that there's anything intrinsically sinful about prestige or holidays or children's educations, for example, but when we live for those things instead of eternity, we're making a foolish investment. They're things we cannot keep. We can't keep them. But friends, the resurrection teaches us that only people can be eternal. So why not use those things to pick three random examples to tell people that Christ is risen and that they can be too? Prestige, let's take that one. If you're a big name in the office, some of you are, why not go to the Christian meeting unashamedly, publicly, and lend that meeting some credibility? If you go on holiday with other people, why not choose people, not so much that you get on with brilliantly, but people you sense might be open to the gospel? If you're educating your children, maybe you're plowing money into that, would you dare to pray that one of them would end up in full-time paid gospel ministry? Would you, would you do that? Would that be a good use of that investment? If Paul were a banker or a father or a teenager, he'd want to be taking as many of his colleagues as many of his family members, as many of his mates in school as possible with him through the resurrection life. Did you know that Christ is raised from the dead and that you could be too? He'd use his money and his time and his relationships all to that end. And he'd be wise. He'd be gaining what he could not lose, and so would they. As I close, it may be that some of you, as I needed to this last week, need to heed verse 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. You know, I puzzled over why that verse was there for some time. But you know, most of our colleagues and acquaintances and friends do not believe in the resurrection. They don't. They are eating and drinking for tomorrow they die. That's why they're living that way. And how easy it is for me to fall into line with them But as has often been said from this pulpit, we march to a different drummer. That is not us. And so Paul says, come back to your senses, John, and stop sinning. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much that you were indeed raised from the dead and that if we are found in you, we too surely will be raised from the dead. Thank you that that load-bearing wall can bear the load Thank you that therefore the gospel is true in its entirety. And we just pray that you would enable us to live in line with that truth now, knowing that tomorrow we live for your namesake. Amen.